my title's gonna. It sounds a bit more um, combative than it really is. I'm not. Um, let me put it this way. Uh, I'm. I'm kind of sympathetic towards a power-based ontology. I just think that the sort of seat of that ontology needs shifting in ways that certain people in this room are going to be very familiar with and very probably very bored with. Um, so, just to when I say what we can agree on, I think sort of. Those of you who are dispositionless or power fanatics or, 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 or whatever, I agree that, say, contra what is often characterized and caricatured as a human view, I agree that in addition to facts about what happens in our world, there is a determinate and objective modal structure. And I agree that the identity of properties is given by their place in this structure. So I'm not terribly sympathetic to quidistic views. Uh, in general, but and, and part of what I want to talk about today is having granted that we can agree on this, but nevertheless, physics isn't a terribly hospitable place for the dispositionist. Part of what I'm going to do, a lot of the talk, I think it's going to be a bit boring to some of these guys and probably quite naive, it's really just sort of saying to dispositionists and, and, and sort of power ontologists, come on, you know, get with the program. Um, uh, if you're going to uh, be inclined towards that sort of ontology, you're going to have to think quite carefully about the, the nature of those dispositions and how you characterize these powers. I'm using dispositions and powers more or less interchangeably. I'm sure many of you are going to say, oh, there's all kinds of nuances that you're just trampling over. Yep, that's what I'm going to do. Happy in the disposition to be correct, in the, in the uh, discussion to be corrected on, on any anything really, but particularly on certain subtleties that I'm riding roughshod over with regard to differences between pan-dispositionalism and monistic disposition, whatever. So that's part of the talk, and then I'm going to suggest that if you do take physics seriously, it's going to incline you towards a kind of structuralist view of the kind that I think Anjan Chakrabarti advocates. Um, but uh, again, as I, as I say, I think the focus has to shift away from from objects. So some of this will be, I'm afraid, a bit boring for some people. So here's a very quick sketch of uh, dispositionalism, the idea, and so taking it from Bird and Mumford, fundamental properties of, of nature are essentially dispositional and um, in particular Bird sees this as being extended to the properties of physics, that these fundamental properties should be regarded as uh, as dispositional. Now, obviously, I'm not sure if there is any difference between dispositional monism and pan-dispositionism, but some people would want to argue that uh, not all properties should be taken to be dispositional. Um, McKittrick, for example, has raised concerns about regress that occurs if you adopt pan-dispositionism with regard to the triggers and so forth. We can talk about that, but I'm not going to particularly get into that. Um, and dispositional properties are those that play, as a matter of conceptual necessity, a certain causal role that's best captured in conditional terms. This is Mumford's view, although, as Anna and I were just talking about uh, just a few minutes ago, in his later work, he sees powers as falling into a kind of irreducibly uh, different ontological category in, in, sort of in modal terms. I, I don't quite understand his latest view, I have to have to confess. And normally we characterize uh, dispositionalism in slightly risque terms, in terms of S and M. Uh, dispositions are characterized in terms of relevant stimulus and manifestation conditions. 
So for a property to be dispositional is for it to relate a stimulus and a manifestation such that if an object instantiates that property, it would yield the manifestation in response to the stimulus. There are issues very well known with regard to the identification of manifestations. What's going to count as your manifestation? Is it going to be, so think of bringing in a charge from infinity. Is it going to be the force on the other charge? Or is it going to be the acceleration induced on that charge or what? And there's been lots of discussion about that. There's an issue with regard to the identification of the, as I've just mentioned, identification of the stimulus, of the triggers. Some, uh, uh, Mara Dorato and Michael Esfeld, think that you can have dispositions without stimuli, and they think that, for example, the certain interpretations of quantum mechanics are best characterized in that way. I have to confess that once you start to rule out or, or erase parts of the, the S or the M, I kind of lose my grip on how these things can be dispositional, but they, they vigorously defend a kind of dispositionalism without stimuli. Okay, so that's dispositionalism. And uh, motivation, um, quite often these guys draw on what they see as the relevant physics. So here we have Anjan from his book, uh, Why and How Do Particulars Interact? It's in virtue of the fact that they have certain properties, properties such as masses, charges, accelerations, volumes, temperatures, all confer certain abilities or capacities. Uh, these capacities are dispositions to behave in certain ways when in the presence or absence of other particulars and their properties. Likewise, Mumford, physics in particular seems to invoke powers, forces, and propensities, spin, charge, mass, radioactive decay. So a whole bunch of different things, you know, from you know, masses, charge, spin, to volume, temperature, radioactive decay, all lumped in together, saying, look, these are all um, dispositional. Um, and a sort of classic work <coughs> from Molnar sets this motivation out. So the claim is, if you look to the physics, physics tells us what result is apt to be produced by the having of gravitational pull or of electromagnetic charge. It doesn't tell us anything else about these properties. In the standard model, that's the, the model, you know, Nobel Prize is all over the place now. That's the model that, you know, that's people are taken to be cemented in place by the discovery of the Higgs. Fundamental physical magnitudes are represented as ones whose whole nature is exhausted by their dispositionality. That is, only their dispositionality enters into their definition. Properties of elementary particles are not given to us in experience. Well, you know, share. Um, they have no accessible qualitative aspect or feature. There is no impression corresponding to the idea. What these properties are is exhausted by what they have a potential for doing, both when they're doing it and when they're not. So that's a sort of fundamental motivation for, I think, much of this program. <clears throat> so this next, these next few slides really, I've I called them sort of pot shots from physics. It's very easy, I think, to sort of take pot shots at these kinds of views. Um, but I think there are, there is, a real concern about how strong this motivation is. So an immediate question one might have is what exactly does physics tell us? And in particular, in what form does it tell us? I mean, you can take physics as it were au naturel. You can go read Phys Rev. You can go hang out with a, a physicist. I mean, I'm not sure that's entirely advisable. Certain parts of the science have done that. They've kind of, you know, 
gone native and hung out in the labs and, the, and the done a bit of anthropological study. Um, you can, as certain folk here advocate, you can adopt a Quinean reconstruction of physical theory. You can express the theory in a certain uh, formal framework. It's not straightforward that physics tells us anything, as it were, you know, just off its own bat. And certainly, I have concerns about adopting this, but even if you were to take it au naturel, it's certainly not clear that physics tells us a dispositionalist story for obvious kinds of reasons to do with an old story of just, you know, how do you get metaphysics out of out of physics, you know, you can talk about metaphysics in, metaphysics out, you can talk about metaphysical underdetermination, the way that physics can support multiple metaphysical stories. It's certainly not the case that physics simply tells us that the properties are dispositional. So, you know, does it tell us that the underlying metaphysics is dispositionless? Um, this underlying metaphysics is one that is object-oriented, it's not at all clear that physics gives us a metaphysics of objects, of course, and that the particulars and their properties are conceived of as being disposed to behave in certain ways. Does the physics tell us that these properties are dispositional, in particular you know, the standard properties mentioned by Molnar, Chakravarti, Mumford, mass, spin, charge, and so forth? Well, it's not clear. So just think of charge. I mean, just think of it. You know, in, in you know, in, in classical terms. So you, the usual way, of, and again, I'm sort of riding roughshod over certain nuances, but the usual way of thinking about this, and I think this is what kind of underpins the motivation for this position. You think of a sort of a, a lone charge, and it's there, sat on its own, and then you bring in, and you, you know, this is what you're taught in sort of what used to be O-level physics, but whatever it is now, bring in another charge brought in from infinity, and you know. Uh, a force is experienced, force is given by, in classically, given by, um, Coulomb's law. So there's your trigger, this other charge coming in. The manifestation is, well, you know, again, as I said, people will, uh, differ, but, you know, you can think of it as either, um, the field, the force, the acceleration. Fine. My concern is that there's an underlying assumption that it's straightforward to conceive of a possible, possible world with a single charged object, a lonely object. This is an assumption that I think underpins quite a lot of contemporary metaphysics. It underpins many current discussions of in the intrinsicality of certain properties. Properties are intrinsic if they can be um, had by a lonely object. So there's an assumption there that uh, possible worlds with lonely objects make sense, right? Well, do they? And this is something that I have doubts about. In this context, what features does this property of charge have? Is it positive or negative? Does it obey Coulomb's law? Is it the generator of this moving away from the purely classical situation, this particular symmetry? Okay. How do we answer those kinds of questions when we just have the possible world with this single object? You're going to have to do a bit of fancy footwork, right? and as we'll see, I mean, the dispositions can do this, to ascribe to the object in this alternative, this other possible world, certain features that we take it to have in this world. Now, recall on that Mumford, Mumford's characterization, charge is dispositional because as a matter of conceptual necessity, it plays the causal role it does 
in repelling or attracting other charges in accordance with Coulomb's law. But what are the grounds for asserting that conceptual necessity in the absence of the broader theoretical context? I mean, this is a point that Kerry McKenzie and I tried to make uh, in this paper, where we're really interested in looking at the relationship, the broader concerns regarding the relationship between metaphysics and uh, the philosophy of physics. But the issue is, is this. Can one straightforwardly take <laughs> the theoretical context of this, the actual world, in which we can articulate our, in terms of which we articulate our understanding of charge, and assume that it holds good in a possible world in which you just have a lonely object, a single object? Um, it's not at all clear that you can. Okay. Um, are there, I mean, if you think of, and this is, this is where these broader issues start to come into play. Part of the, the, the concern now has to do with what is the basis for establishing, constructing certain possible worlds. If you insist that what count as physically possible worlds, and I assume given the motivation, those are the possible worlds that we are interested in, that the dispositions should be interested in, one might adopt the view that physically possible worlds are given by, or should be uh, uh, constructed on the basis of the current physics, the standard model. Right? Does the standard model allow possible worlds in which you have a single charged object? The very, lit, well, the very best one can say it's not at all clear. It's not at all clear that there are the relevant solutions. Okay. Now the dispositionists can say, in fact they have said, look, hang on a minute. French, you're just me mixing up metaphysics with epistemology. Right? Epistemically, we come to know how charge behaves in our actual broad theoretical context. And on that basis, we come to we articulate a certain metaphysics of what charge is. Okay? On, on that basis, we ascribe that metaphysics with respect to charge as a property which holds even beyond or out with that context. Okay? And indeed, the disposition can say that's the very point of dispositionalism, right? Charge is disposed to behave in accordance with Coulomb's law when the relevant context applies, when the trigger is brought in from infinity. Okay? So, in a sense, the disposition is going to say, look, I, I can't get my program off the ground unless you allow me these kinds of possible worlds, because in a sense, they, they underpin and help me express the very sense in which the property is dispositional. It's only manifested when a trigger uh, appears. But again, we'll have, yeah, I think we have to return to this issue of what, how are these lonely worlds generated? Okay? Ian Hacking, in this uh, wonderful paper of his on the identity of discernibles, insisted that you can't just avail yourself of them by mere stipulation. I mean, you can, right? But the worry then is you're going to be, uh, in a sense, generating a metaphysics that if you're not careful is going to be detached, increasingly detached from uh, uh, the relevant physics. And this is where these broader issues of the relationship between metaphysics and fossil physics start to come in. Howell and Slater have a very nice paper where they talk about two standard ways in which these lonely worlds that I take to underpin the motivation for dispositionalism, that these lonely worlds are generated. One they call impoverishment. So the idea is it's kind of abstraction. You say, look, it's you know, I'm not doing anything fancy with these possible worlds, right? I'm just, think of our world and then depopulate it, right? So you all go, the table goes, everything goes, 
uh, Oxford goes, and there's just this lone proton, say, right? The other is you build from scratch, right? You say, no, 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 you know, I'm going to play God, imagine it's a possible world. There's a kind of big bang, but it's not very big because at the end of it, you just get one proton. Um, and you build from the ground up a permanently sparse world containing only one proton. And their, their discussion is in the context of the debate between the human and the non-human over the um, status of laws. And again, how these kinds of world-building assumptions underpin that debate. Well, now consider impoverishment. Okay. That the laws remain stable, as standard laws. This is meant with just in the classical world. So, like, yeah, 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 okay, French. Look, if everyone in this room disappeared, boom, and the tables go, boom, and Oxford go, boom, Coulomb's law is still going to be in place. It's still going to hold, right? It'd be crazy to think that it doesn't. So that law is going to remain stable. And likewise, you know, the standard model is inconceivable that, if Oxford were to disappear tomorrow, heaven for Ben. But if it did, the standard model would still be, you know, they'd still be beavering away in the CERN. Oh, Oxford's gone. Oh, what shape? We'll still be working away on the standard model. Once you go beyond the everyday, though, once you say, okay, now let's imagine all this side of the particle zoo goes, right? So, and we lose, so we lose all, all these hadrons, we lose electrons, and we just have this one proton. Does the standard model still hold? Does the standard model give a solution in which there's just one proton? Well, as I said, it's a non-trivial question. It's not at all clear, but it does. And if it doesn't, you can't help yourself to that theoretical context in that possible world. That's part of my, my claim. It's not entirely legitimate to do that. I think building from scratch is even worse. You say, look, okay, look, and this, I'm just going to think, right? The way hacking advises not to, I'm just going to stipulate there's a world in which there's just a lone proton. On what basis can we then maintain that the laws of that world are as they are? Just by stipulation. Right? But again, you're going to have to say something about whether that model, those laws allow for that particular possible world. And again, it's a non-trivial kind of question. Could that lone proton have all the mass that it's actually taken to have in the absence of the Higgs field? Could the proton properly be said to be charged in the absence of any photons that mediate the electromagnetic inter interaction? Could the standard matter-antimatter symmetry be said to hold in a world in which you don't have any antimatter? Could the symmetry by which protons are related to other types of hadrons could SU3 hold in such a world? These are non-trivial types of questions. Yet the disposition is just assuming that the answer is yes, 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 yes. Right? It's this thing, we can still talk about it having the disposition and, as we'll see in a second, to generate the relevant laws from that. It's not at all uh, straightforward. So given the non-trivial nature of the defense of the claim that the lone proton world represents the solution of the actual laws, what hope have we of defending the idea that it's a solution of realistic natural laws when we don't even we don't even have any idea what those laws are supposed to look like. At the very least, and so um, perhaps that's worded again in slightly combative fashion. At the very least, the dispositionist needs to tell a bit more of a story. I'm not saying it's impossible, but she needs to say um, a bit more. And if we don't have any idea what the laws are supposed to look like, how how can we claim to have any idea what the properties of the lone proton, such as the charge 
are supposed to do. That's the worry. Okay. Likewise, spin, and we can just go through the properties mentioned by, by Mumford. Um, we know that spin, well known, that it's, uh, it doesn't have a, a classical analog. It's Dirac famously railed against the picture of thinking of the electron as literally spinning like a little, little top. Margie Morrison has a paper where she talks about that picture and the difficulty with understanding the notion of, uh, of, of spin um, and the way in which, you know, we, we have an experimental grip on spin. I mean, there's a whole field now and physicists at Leeds are working away and it's called spintronics where spin is used in certain ways to, to create different behaviors in materials. We also know that the best way of getting a grip on it is in terms of group theory and regarding it as a group invariant. And as Morrison says, our current understanding seems to depend primarily on that group theoretical description. What that mathematics gives us is what Eddington called a kind of pattern of interrelatedness of relations. Morrison sees this as giving spin a kind of, she thinks of it as a hybrid property, partly mathematical, partly physical. I have to confess I can't really make any sense of that. I think that's a metaphysical issue. I mean, can a property be properly hybrid in the sense of partly mathematical? You know, I think it's, I think that relates to all kinds of issues, some of which I think are to do with some of the work of Alan Baker and others on, you know, the role of mathematics in science and, and, uh, um, realism with regard to mathematical entities. But I actually can't make much sense of a property you know, the mathematics not just being descriptive, but actually being constitutive of the property and it also being physical. I mean, uh, it's probably very problematic. So this idea that we could imagine a lonely world in which there's, you know, particle, proton, electron, and ascribe to that particle spin understood in, as, as described by, as characterized in the standard sort of group theoretic way, understood in terms of, I mean, think of it in terms of this interrelatedness of relations, right? Um, but without anything else being there, for it, that particle in a sense to be related to. Likewise, mass, um, well, you know, I thought I would, I would mention this since, you know, okay, 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 there should have been other people involved and there should have been more people who got the Nobel Prize, but still, you know, it's a kind of a neat thing that Higgs got it finally. For the theoretical discovery of mechanism that cons contributes to our understanding of the origin of mass, of if not all. And the mechanism is the Higgs boson, the excitation of the Higgs field. Think of the field as sort of, you know, <clears throat> everywhere and famously introduced to, as a part of what's known as symmetry breaking, breaks the electroweak force, photon carrier of the electromagnetic force is left massless, the Force carriers of the weak force, uh, get mass. It also couples to fermions. And so this is, you know, mass again on this view is not something straightforwardly that a, that a, a, a lonely object straightforwardly has. Does it make any sense to have a possible world with a lone object, nothing else, and to ascribe it mass? Well, no, on this view, at least you've got to say, no, no, there's going to have to be a Higgs field there. In order to give it mass, okay. And this point, I mean, point been made by 
by Bauer. Mass uh, can't be an intrinsic ungrounded disposition because according to the standard model, it's grounded in the Higgs field. And so we should look beyond the objects and particles bearing dispositions to properties of their environment and of other objects in exploring the ontological ground of dispositions. So all of this, in a way, it's, it's kind of cheap, right? It's just sort of going around dispositionless and saying, ah, read a bit of physics, right? Talk to some of these guys, shape up your ontology, come on, get with the program. Just to drive home the point, on the standard model, the equations governing particle interactions generated from the interaction-free equation by demanding that those equations are invariant under a certain transformation, certain gauge transformation. And that's what determines the properties for us. That's how the properties, uh, and many physicists use this phrase, drop out of this picture. Okay, We get these force-carrying particles, photons, gluons, and so forth. And this picture undermines the loneliness basis, undermines the loneliness basis we're talking about in intrinsic properties, and it undermines the loneliness basis for the attribution of dispositional properties. That, in a way, is, is my kind of take-home message. I think dispositionalism is based on a picture that is just too simplistic. I don't think it can't be made more <coughs> nuanced, but I think the, the underlying picture of you have this kind of isolated entity and you bring in a trigger and there's a manifestation. That just seems the wrong kind of picture, the wrong basis for your ontology. It doesn't, I mean, you could present it strongly and say it doesn't mesh with the relevant physics, or you can say it doesn't mesh straightforwardly with the relevant physics. There are things one can do, right? So you could say, look, even though as far as the actual physics is concerned, these properties are conceptually entwined with the implementation of the relevant transformations. And even though these transformations bring in their weight the corresponding force carriers, these further particles. So, I mean, this, this is the problem. It, you know, you're, you're saying, look, I want, the, I want there to be a lonely world and I want the proton to be charged and the relevant manifestation doesn't happen until I bring in the trigger. And you're like saying, right, you really mean that's a lonely world? There's nothing else there? There isn't even any photons that carry, right? And the disposition says, yes, 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 I, it's lonely. It's really lonely. Otherwise, you know, trigger, manifestation. Uh, the relevant physics doesn't hold there, right? So you're going to have to tell a little story. So one story you could tell is, well, these bosons are only contingently associated with these properties, right? So if you like, it's, it just so happens in this world, we have particles with a charge, and that's associated with bosons that carry the electromagnetic force. But they could still exist. They could, says the dispositionalist, still exist lone protons without any of this other stuff. Well, that's just desperation, I think. That's just uh, a desperate strategy. Since we can't assess this claim by appeal to anything that can inform us of protons, how will we ever know whether this is the case? I mean, if there's no basis for... I mean, part of the motivation I took it was that these underpinning lonely worlds are somehow physically reasonable, and clearly they're not in this case. And to insist that one can still have them, I think you've now become detached from the very motivation for, or at least those motivations, for dispositionalism. The alternative, or an alternative, is to simply say, look, look, I, I take all that, uh, and that's all great. And if I want to, I'll go away and read the Scientific American about the Higgs 
mechanism and I'll read about group theory and gauge invariance, blah, 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 blah. But what I'm going to do is take all that and just bundle it up. I'm just going to say there's a metaphysical correlate of all that physics and it's just going to be a feature of the relevant disposition. So I'm going to say, yeah, 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 you've got this, lone, this, this lonely world, got this lone proton, and that proton has the disposition to yield the relevant equations, the laws, the relevant transformations, the relevant symmetries. That's part of what I meant by it having, you know, when you, and this is part of the nuancing. So the dispositionalist is now saying, look, okay, okay, I was thinking kind of classically, lone proton, trigger, there's a force, ooh, you know, the kind of stuff, you rub a biro on your sweater and it attracts paper and stuff like that. That's what I was thinking of. But now you've, you've, you've persuaded me I need, need to sort of operate in this more sophisticated context. It's going to say the same thing in a way, right? Lone proton, nothing else, bring in a trigger, <coughs> the standard model in effect, right? The relevant uh, bosons and so on appear in that context, right? It's all kind of bound up in the disposition, bound up in what we, you know, what we mean uh, by charge. It will be manifested when it's in the appropriate context. In this world, the actual world, that context always happens to be present, right? We, we, things are never that isolated. Okay? But in order to, in order for us to conceptually get a, a grip on the relevant dispositions, we have to kind of abstract away, perhaps fire impoverishment, and conceive of these uh, lonely possible worlds. But nevertheless, the disposition, you know, bundles up metaphysically all of, you know, the correlate to all of that physics. Well, the obvious response to that is, okay, I need some more. Okay. I need the metaphysical correlate of the relationships between the objects, the properties, and the relevant laws and, and, and symmetries. If we are to engage in a properly naturalistic or naturalized metaphysics, we need to do more than simply coin a term or a phrase for a complex piece of physics, right? Otherwise, you're just talking about sort of normative virtues, really. Now, there's kind of a tension there, I think, because I, mean, I think this is a, t a tension inherent in, in naturalized metaphysics. Once I've got someone might press the line. Once I've got the, the physics, what do I need with this metaphysical correlate? Right? I mean, what, indeed, what do I need even with the notion of, of, a, of a disposition? What work is it doing for me? What understanding is it bringing? You might insist that the metaphysics has a certain explanatory virtue, and I take that to be part of the reason why we use the language of dispositions, right? It starts I mean, it typically starts, and, and books on dispositions like birds and mothers typically start with the standard examples like the fragility of a vase. I mean, who has vases anymore? But the fragility of a vase, and then you kind of extend that notion down to the, to the, to the micro level. And you say, look, you know, think of this uh, of fragility. Um, if you think of this property in non-categorical terms, in dispositional terms, that, has, that helps us explain certain things philosophically. Right. It, it, and it becomes a kind of umbrella term that we can apply to other properties. Um, and we can, ex and the claim is, as, you know, as, as I've been banging on about, we can extend that to the micro world. But in a sense, this is, the ch I think, the challenge for dispositions. That's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to flesh out this metaphysical correlate. 
in similar kinds of terms. As I see in a second, in a certain sense, Chakravarti has done that in, 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 in some respects, but not terribly, I think, convincingly. Otherwise, what's the point, right? The philosopher of physics is going to say, look, I, 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 you know, we have the standard model, we have a grip on what spin is, what charge is, why do I even need to conceive of it in these dispositional terms? And in particular, given these problems with, with um, your isolated, lowly particle worlds, I, you know, it may not be that your disposition is, is the right picture at all. And in particular, in thinking of this bundling, can we actually get from the disposition characterized by these stimulus and manifestation conditions to the law of symmetries? Well, this is something I've mentioned before in a talk I gave here a year or so ago. Vetter, I think formerly of this parish, <coughs> in a review of Bird, points out on Bird's dispositional analysis, it's actually difficult, well, it's impossible to get formally to get from the dispositions understood in terms of S and M to Coulomb's law. What the dispositional account gives us are instances of Coulomb's law, right? So you get these, you know, expressions involving determinants, right? Bring in charge E1, trigger, get manifestation, you know, F1. Bring in charge 2, E2, trigger, get manifestation, F2, and so on. Great. So what I get is a whole list of determinate instances. Better says, and I think she's got a good point, that's not Coulomb's law, which is a determinable. What you haven't done is precisely capture the kind of mode, the modality, the modal element. Okay? And indeed, you know, I think one way of looking at that is, well, that's, that's always a doomed enterprise to go from determinants to determinables in that way. What you get, she says then, what you have to explain is the meta-regularity. Right? The, the claim will be, look, I've got all these instances of Coulomb's law, right? So F1 equals some constant E1, E2 over R1, 2 squared, F2 equals some constants E2, E3, and so on and so on. There's going to be a similarity between all those instances. How do you explain that? The dispositionalist on at least Bird's analysis can't explain that, right? And as she says, it's not at all clear what the metaphysical picture here is supposed to be. Now, I have an answer to that, a well-known answer, and I'll get to that in a second, which is where basically to you know, flip this kind of picture on its, on its head. The further defensive strategy you might take then is to say, okay, fine, look, friend, what you're telling me bluntly is that what's underlying all of the kind of the dispositionalist uh, motivation is a kind of view of properties as monadic, as intrinsic. So we need to make them more relational. We need to take it up a gear. So this is what Chakravarti does. In particular, the kinds of properties that he calls detection properties, causal properties, should be understood in terms of dispositions for specific relations. Right? So if you like, the disposition bundles up not a whole bunch of, you know, kind of monadic properties, but relational properties. And these relational properties comprise physical structures. And the idea is that, so, you know, as I understand it, you have an object, properties, what this property, how this property is characterized is in terms of these relational dispositions. So with the appropriate trigger, you get the relations, and that gives us the laws. So that, as he puts it, laws and properties are just flip sides of the 
same coin. The laws are effectively encoded in the dispositions conferred by the properties. And the identity of properties, this is the dispositional identity thesis, of course, is just given in terms of the laws they participate in. Well, the, an obvious question then is, right, if the laws are encoded in dispositions, does that lead to a, a, an illimitivism about the laws? Ontologically, it seems that all we need on that picture are the dispositions. We don't need laws. And that indeed is what Mumford, that's the line Mumford takes in his book, uh, Laws in Nature. Uh, he draws that inference from dispositionism, that there are no laws as governors, not in the sort of, you know, police or right, governor sense, but in the sense of governing uh, what goes on, uh, governing events or governing the phenomena in, in some sense. And that's a, a problem, I think, you know, there's an interesting discussion to be had about that sense in which laws are taken to govern. Some people argue that's not a sense we should, we should, um, uh, we should still hold to. It's a, it's a, um, it's something that, uh, it's a feature of laws that derives from uh, the kind of origin of scientific laws in, say, 17th century by association with the laws of the land in some sense or the laws of kings or whatever. But we should perhaps drop that governing role. And this is what Chakravarti does. Nevertheless, even if you do that, all the modal force on this view lies with the disposition. So why bother having laws in your ontology as distinct things? And this is, there's a, a an interesting debate in uh, a review of Mumford's book in Metascience between Bird and Mumford and others, uh, Silos um, and others, on whether, you know, even if you weaken this encoding and talk of the laws supervening on the relevant dispositions, whether that pushes you towards a kind of a limitivism. Mumford clearly takes it to do that. I'm quite sympathetic with that that account. Um, I think there's a tension there. If the dispositionist wants to maintain laws as distinct things, then that opens a gap that she can't bridge between the disposition and the law. And that, in a sense, is what Bird does. And I don't see how he can close that gap. I don't see then how dispositions give us the laws. If you close the gap, and say, yes, the dispositions give us the laws, then I think an obvious move to make is to follow Mumford and say, right, and I, I, you know, in a sense, I don't need the laws as part of my fundamental ontology. Okay. And, and, you know, some people may find that worrying, I, I, others not. The other concern, again, is a, 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 a familiar refrain. A lot of modern physics and the standard model as I very briefly and crudely il illustrated has to do with the role of symmetries. The, Thinking of the symmetries sense yields the, the properties that we are concerned with. How are we to regard those symmetries? Standard view is you can either regard them as constraints on laws, kind of meta laws, laws of the laws, or as byproducts of the laws. Well, how can the dispositionalist accommodate? Okay, you might just say, ah, ah done it once, I'll do it again. Encoding, right? It's just wrapped up. It's the metaphysical correlate. There's a metaphysical correlate of the symmetries. Eh, tell me more. Okay, Are they separate from or part of the encoding for laws? Is it the case that the, you know, a disposition that gives us the relations that are described by, say, Coulomb's law or what, you, know, the, the, you know, the laws of modern physics, does that Encoding, does that disposition also encode the relevant symmetries? Is that just a kind of byproduct? 
Do the laws themselves have powers or dispositions? So it's kind of a, a two-stage process. I'd, I'd like to know. I just, you know, I, I would, I need some story. Again, some dispositionalists say no. Some dispositionalists say, look, and this is Bird, this is, you know, if you're an essentialist, properties, he says, are already constrained by their own essences. So there's ni neither need nor opportunity for higher order properties to direct which relations they can engage in. Right, so he's thinking of the symmetries as constraints here. And clearly that's a problem on the dispositionalist view. If it's the dispositional <coughs> essence of the property that yields the laws, where are these constraints coming from? On the dispositionist, they can't just impose them. They have to come from the disposition. And so he actually thinks of symmetry principles as pseudo-laws to be written out. Disastrous movement. I think that kind of a limitivism that many people would find very problematic. And there's a nice paper by Levanios on precisely this issue. In particular, we think of the symmetries as giving us particles and particle kinds. It seems to me that it's a very dangerous move to be limitivist, as sympathetic as I am to limitivism in general, to be limitivist about symmetries. And indeed, Chakravarti tries to do what I've been suggesting that dispositionists should do. <coughs> he tries to come up with a metaphysical correlate of this physical notion of symmetry. He calls it sociability, right? the idea that certain properties are social, they come together. So we get, um, if, you, if you like, think of you know, the electron. It has a certain property being a fermion, a certain kind, you know, it falls into a certain kind, has a certain charge, a certain mass, certain spin, they all come together in a bundle. He calls that sociability. And, you know, and again, I think I, this is where I can, you know, give it sort of a fair play. Um, I can see why this metaphysical term does some work for you, precisely because you can talk about very high degrees of sociability, right? It's of the essence of the electron that it has that mass, has that spin, has that charge. Right, highest degree. But then you might think of other kinds, right, in say the biological domain, where the sociability is has a lesser degree. It's not quite so so tight, so firm, if you like. And so that notion of sociability can act as a kind of umbrella term. One of the issues, I think, between myself and Anjan over this is whether you take this as a primitive or as something to be explained. He takes this to be a metaphysical primitive, right? But it's an obvious move that one can make and say, yeah, yeah, this is something you've noticed at like, if you like, at the phenomenological level, there's this certain sociability in the world. But we can explain that now. We can explain it in terms of the relevant symmetries in physics. And again, I think you face the tension then that all that uh, I mentioned crops up in, in naturalized metaphysics. Once you've done that, you've kind of gutted the term. I don't need sociability anymore. It's kind of like a bit of folk philosophy. Ooh, certain properties are sociable. They, you know, they like to be together. Once I've got the physics, I don't need that anymore. Okay, that's the, that's the worry with the metaphysical corollary. The final concern is <clears throat> just the old worry, really, that I think, this, and, th and this is what I think it comes down to in discussions I've had with Chakravarti and Mumford and Bird. There's this kind of gut intuition that you have to have objects as the seat of causal powers. For all you know, that I, I've just said, they say, yeah, 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 we understand physics gives us this picture of the world as you know, 
properties in, in, as relational in a certain sense. You know, I need to go into that in more detail. Nevertheless, those properties are seated in objects. Now we know, familiar story, that quantum mechanics tells us that thick objects, well, you see what I mean by that by contrast with the next line, are problematic for all the usual reasons, you know, to do with their individuality and so forth. One recent work by Simon and others has shown how we can maintain a thin object, a kind of quinian object, in the sense of, you know, to be, to be the value of a variable, and, you know, I've got an X in my, uh, in my, uh, regimentation, in my regimented theory, and I'm going to take that X to denote an object, um, and those objects can be, you know, weakly discerned in terms of certain kinds of relations, such as holding certain kind of quantum mechanical states. Great. Well, those objects are very thin. They're basically just formal placeholders, and standardly they're taken to have not to bear, if you like, intrinsic properties as usually understood. They are contextually individuated via the relevant relations. That's James Ladyman's line. The worry then is that they are simply too thin to act as the seat of the powers and the dispositions, or to encode the laws and symmetries. Okay, there's a there's a real worry that I mean I, I mean this is I appreciate this is quite vague, but there's a real worry where. I mean, I'll put it this way crudely. One of the things about substance, right, that we all thought was, you know, we all held dear, is that substance was the seat of power, that substance was powerful. Substance was the seat of possession. It substance is possessed properties. And, you know, there are lots, you know, long history of philosophical debate of what that means by, you know, possessed and, and what it would mean for the seat. Part of, I, I, I take, um, is what's happened over the last hundred years is that notion of substance has kind of evaporated. Um, and then it's not clear whether we have anything that can function as the seat or the possessor in the same sense. And certainly I think this kind of object, I think, is too thin to be the seat of the dispositionalist powers. Okay. So what's the, the response? Well, the response is one that some of you have heard many, 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 many times before, which is, Flip Chakravarti's coin. He says, you know, laws and properties are just two sides of the same coin. Okay. So if we go back to the Molnar, we start, you know, the Molnar code, start with what physics tells us. What physics tells us about a whole lot of laws and symmetries out there. Okay. Take those to be ontologically fundamental. What they yield are the relevant properties, spin, charge, mass, and so forth. If you want to, you really must. You can take those properties to be bundled in such a way that you can actually you know, use the term object. I don't see any need for that. And in that sense, I think I'm, in limit, I can, I'm happy to be the limitivist about object. So you kind of reverse engineer the dispositionism. Properties and objects, if you like, are encoded in or flow from or are dependent on the laws and symmetry. So it's, rather than thinking of objects, dispositions, and sometimes relational, that somehow gives us the laws. Right? We can solve Vetter's problem. Okay? We can bridge the gap by starting from the other side. And there is no gap to be bridged because we are limited to this now, not about the laws, but about the object. I think on that view, it's much easier, it's immediately obvious that you can, you know, you're meshed with the relevant physics. You're going to have to tell a story, and some of us try to do that, about the laws. So Maudlin takes the laws in physics to be primitive. 
you might want to add some more to that. You might want to talk about how they can be understood as certain kinds of determinables, for example. But you can tell that kind of story. So you're immediately kind of on board with all the physics. <clears throat> you can take the laws and symmetries as fundamental, as modal, and as powerful, you know, as, as imbued with the relevant modality and power. And this is part of what I call, you know, modal structuralism. The structure of the world is constituted in part, because you do need some determinate features, by the laws and symmetries regarded as fundamental. That structure encodes the relevant, i.e. physical possibilities. It's inherently, primitively, if you like, modal. Um, the core point is that the power is with the laws and symmetries. Okay, so in a sense, all we're doing is, and this is why I'm, you know, I'm not, as, uh, you know, why I said at the very beginning, my title's a bit more combative than, 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 than I am, really. You think of if you're if you're a non-human, right? There's a kind of modal bump in the carpet out there, and you can either have it come up here in dispositionalism, object-oriented disposition, or you push it down, eliminate the objects, and it pops up in the laws, right? Um, and so you do have to say something about how the laws now are the seat or the locus. I think is a, is a better term of the relevant power. It does mean, I think, that that old picture of dispositions as, uh, uh, you know, not just as seated in the objects, but as the kinds of things from which the laws flow has to be abandoned. But I don't see that there's any great loss in that, right? You can still, you still have your kind of web of relations, so you're still on board with the relevant physics. You still get the properties. You explain sociability, so you don't have to invent new metaphysical uh, terms. I think there is interesting metaphysical work to be done talking about how laws can be powerful in that sense. And you get away from and that, I think, rather crude picture of the trigger and the manifestation. So in that sense, I think you are doing away with dispositions, but you're still retaining the modal power. I'm not really that bothered whether you use the word power or primitive modality, as long as you agree with this bit. Okay, I'll stop now.